when I think about how my life has changed in unpredictable, unplanned, almost unbelievable ways, it's pretty extraordinary. We are going for liftoff in T minus 30. All systems are the And on this episode of the Great Escape podcast, I've got David Bartley. And often when I get in contact with people about uh, being on the podcast, some people send me pages and pages of bio and really interesting stuff. David sent me one line and I knew I had to have him on the the podcast because he just wrote one man's journey from mental hellness to mental wellness. David, welcome to the podcast. Stuart, such an honor to be here. Good morning. Good morning, at least from the United States. Good afternoon in the UK. You're, you're really welcome. So David, tell us, what was life like before? You know, really, on, on the one hand, and I'll jump just to the side for a second. It, my, this, and I would imagine you agree that I have this line that sometimes what hurts the most can't be seen. So that was going on in the background. But on the surface, and especially close to the day that I was going to end my life, which as of tomorrow is exactly eight years, so August 31st, 2011. At the time, I was married to a wonderful woman named Deanna, and we were running a very large, nationally recognized senior special needs and end-of-life animal sanctuary called A Chance for Bliss. And the sanctuary was home to as many as 100 animals at any one time, 25 horses, 23 dogs, all of whom lived in the house, by the way. So we were the advent of dog house that, that came from us. Nine pot pigs. I mean, just imagine the quintessential Noah's Ark on a beautiful two and a half acre parcel in a little hamlet, as I call it, called Penryn, about 30 minutes east of Sacramento in Northern California. So life was extraordinary in terms of what I was doing as a vocation. Uh, and we did no adoptions because we looked for animals that were deemed to be unadoptable. And it was very purposeful and even magical. And in the background was this relationship with what I call the monster, and in my case, clinical depression, which I had dealt with for close to 40 years. And I've known now, or I've discovered that the, the genesis of that was the inheritance of the genetic predisposition from my grandfather who ended his life very early, my father who was clinically depressed, losing my father at just seven, the the traumatic aspect, and the unfortunate, horrific experience of being twice raped by a trusted community leader. So much in line with the statistics, and I'm not a stat person, that the vast majority of of men and, and people who deal with a condition like clinical depression, that it started by the time they were 14. I fall, unfortunately, in that category. So the monster and I had had a longstanding relationship. Sometimes he took a little holiday, but for the most most part, he was there with me. And on that day, eight years ago, after he trying for close to 40 years, he convinced me to the, to the true essence and, and center of my being that I was worthless, that I was useless, stupid, grotesque, ugly, uh, an embarrassment, a burden. And most damning was, I was convinced that everybody in my life at the time, they would be far better off in the absence of my death and the, this killing myself. And, and, and it's, I, I emphasize that when I do talks that in that moment, and right when I was on, on the literal edge, as I say, a dark spot on a tall, tall bridge, I truly 
felt that my action was selfless, not selfish. Because the, the remnants, of course, are why was this person so selfish? And I think in, in certainly in my research and understanding of suicide and, and the work I do, um, it is almost never that that's what the person thinks. What you've described of actually the brain has gone through a logical sequence of thoughts that have said everybody else will be better off if I'm not here. Right. And, and however distorted that process is to get you to that point, inside the person suffering the depression, it feels like it was it is the logical, correct thing to do. No, and I and I agree. And your use of the word logical steward is perfect. It felt yeah. completely empirical, right? There was no it, it made sense. Again, it wasn't logical, but it felt logical. It felt in a visceral sense. Like there was no doubt. Yeah. Yeah, and from my own personal depression, yeah, that, that's exactly how I felt. Yeah, you know, th- th- this sequence of events is the right logical sequence of events. It feels like the right thing to do. Yeah, and so I remember. But hey, I interrupted you. So no, no, no. So I remember on on that. So I had I had both from my own experience and from the view from the outside in an idyllic expression. I mean, people. The sanctuary was an, was an amazing place. And as you can imagine, we had as many as 23 dogs living in the house in addition to another 75 animals outside. And you, if you can think about 23 dogs in a house, there's all kinds of Stephen King-like images that come up in your mind. And yet it was clean. It was orderly. And because this is my belief that we did no adoptions, there was a very tangible sense of permanence. And if you think about no dog in particular had ever come to live with 22 other dogs, but when you would walk into the home, it was literally peaceful and calm. And so to have this wondrous experience, people would come in and they, they could even on the property because it was clean and orderly, as mentioned, not just inside, but out. People couldn't, it was, it was a Disneyland like experience. And yet I could not grasp the monster had convinced me so completely that it didn't matter that I was taking care of, of dying animals that like you just said perfectly, Deanna, my former bride, she would be far better off. She, she'd be able to take the sanctuary to the next level. And so here in Sacramento in the summertime, it's dry and it's warm and almost no clouds. And so I woke up on that morning, typed out my suicide note, and then without telling D or anybody else where I was headed, I remember it was interesting. I had, a, I had a red pickup truck at the time. And I look back respectively now and say it was this emergency color. And it made the short drive from our home in Penryn. There's a, there's a bridge called the Forest Hill Bridge. Now, everybody knows the Golden Gate Bridge. The Golden Gate Bridge stands 250 feet off the water. Well, the Forest Hill Bridge stands 730 feet off the water. It's enormously tall. Um, so I, I parked my vehicle and I remember I turned it off and I, I put my hands reflexively for whatever reason at the 10 and two position on the steering wheel, pushed my body back into the passenger seat, closed my eyes and then quickly opened my, opened my eyes, took a deep breath, reached over, grabbed the suicide note, placed that on the center of the dash took the keys out of the ignition, placed those in the center of a note, 
exited the vehicle, turned around, make sure I'd left the door unlocked, crossed the road, and then the Forest Hill Bridge, the bridge deck is close to a half a mile long. And the view from either side is spectacular. And I was intentional to just focus on the light post that was at the center point and very committed to not make eye contact with the people who were driving by. And so I walked to the middle. At the time, the suicide barrier was about four and a half feet and I'm six feet, so it hit me kind of mid chest. Interesting, the barrier has since been risen to a little over six feet in the last eight years. I bent over and again, resisting temptation to look ahead, focused on a, a singular dark spot in the middle of the river, the North Fork of the American River, which runs perpendicular. And I know you can relate, my mind very committed at that point to keep me in a, a place of illusion. In the circle of my aim, there was the water wasn't flowing. It, was, it became this object to fixate on. And in that place, time and space and all, relatively, all relativity, except for that spot of water, went away. So I have no idea how long I stayed in that place, but it was long enough for a passing driver to act. It, we've all done it at least once. In viewing a scene, we have this feeling that something's not right with this picture. Something's off. Don't know exactly what it is, but something's off. And she picked up the phone, called 911, and a first responder, a deputy sheriff, approached me from the left-hand side. And he, he did two things, and I like to distinguish them. He initially established contact, which is a logistical experience, and then established connection, which is life-saving. And in my belief, connection creates hope. And while faith and, and love are good, I believe hope is actually the, the greatest of the three, created hope and hope saved my life. And I was taken off the bridge into an emergency room and then to a psychiatric hospital where I, would have been, I was a guest for 15 days. And really it changed my life. And referencing back when people found out I was there and why they couldn't process it. It just, they saw me as this happy and contented soul. How could a person like this, how could a person like me not realize their worth? How could they believe the lie? And it just, it took them a great period of time to, to understand slowly but surely the intensity of the malady, the intensity of the ability of the monster to convince a, a soul of a lie. And so I stayed in this place and then got out. And then what's interesting, and I, I don't always mention this, I, I've added it more to my talks. My life actually after getting out of the, of the psychiatric hospital was even more difficult it was this perfect storm of a critical health need, massive stress in running such a large operation, but also societal misunderstanding about mental illness, stigma, even a, a, a hint of, of prejudice. By the end of that year, I handed the keys to the repo man and watched him drive away with my vehicle as support for our efforts were taken away. Lost a home to foreclosure and it was sold at auction. The animals were placed in other facilities and the marriage to a beautiful soul and the massive weight of all of this ended. And so in the analogy of a plague of locusts, I was wiped out completely. And as I say, had it was this experience that gave me the profound 
realization of the truth about connection, I made connection and a friendship, established a relationship with another middle-aged man in the psychiatric hospital named Don. When Don got out, he went to a men's depression support group, a group of middle-aged men who met every week for two hours. And he called me, checked on me. I remember him saying, how are you doing? I said, not good. In fact, brother, I'm really in a bad place. And where I'd gone is I went to go live with my two brothers and sister-in-law, a place eight years later, Stuart, I still live in a different type of sanctuary. Don went to the meeting, called me, he said, I think you'd like it. And for the next six and a half years, every Tuesday, I'd have my counseling appointment between four and five o'clock, have a break, and then go to group from six to eight. And from that group, met my current therapist, my current psychiatrist, the refinement of my diagnosis, and given the first opportunity pub to tell my story publicly seven years ago and 400 plus talks all across the, the country, this, much like you shared with me, the establishment and the now the living of a brand new purpose, the, the sanctuary doesn't operate anymore, but life with the big L has given me the opportunity to wrap mental health and animal stories to make a very daunting, intimidating subject very relatable with stories that everybody loves, but it makes the actionable items about self-care and leaning on others and it makes all those actionable items rememberable because they can think about a, a horse that was going to die, I thought, came out, and a dog that came depressed and was revived, and a, a duck that had been wounded and she lived in the bathtub and all these different things. It, it keeps people in a place that they can hear what's the essential message is this is a medical condition. We didn't choose it. And per four words that a psychiatrist said to me in the psychiatric hospital, which truly turned my life around as dramatically as the first responder on the bridge, when the psychiatrist leaned forward to me and said, it's not your fault, which by that point I had believed it was my fault. So these stories, these animal stories, when I think about how my life has changed in unpredictable, unplanned, almost unbelievable ways, it's pretty extraordinary. Yeah, and that's uh, an amazing uh, tale, uh, again, of that moment, that driver who just thought something's wrong here right. and need to, to do something, and then there was a first responder available within the correct time frame, you know, all of these things. Yeah. Um, and, and for so many people, uh, they're suffering in silence and their moment of crisis comes and there is nobody who says, ah, oh, there's something wrong. And I, I think you, you described very well, often the external life looks fine. People are looking at the life and soul of the party. And I, and I think of the, the five guys whose funerals I've taken in the, in the last uh, few months who've taken their own lives. Yeah. You know, every one of them, their friends and family described him. He was the life and soul of the party. He right. was always the guy who was getting everybody together. Right. He was always the guy who was lifting friends up. We didn't realize he was struggling. And you kind of described that almost perfectly, that sense of nobody looking in right. sees it. And also the, the fact that it is often genetic, that it, we, we can look back in our family trees and, and sideways at cousins and siblings and, and see that it isn't just us. Yeah. And also that it isn't just us, that, that 
you know, modern life or life in general, immense stresses on on all of us. And just like a bone will break if you put too much pressure on it, mm. the brain is a chemical system. And if you run it in hyper stress mode for too long, it starts to break. Yeah. It starts to function badly. So your your story to that point, and you've one of the lovely things I think really you you're quite open about the fact that it's taken you a long time to get to functioning again and I think that's you know in today's quick fix we think you know I can take a pill and I'll be fine no you can take a pill and you can make the pain go away for 10 minutes but the pain is still there when you come back You, you actually have to change life dramatically so how how do you see life moving forwards you said you were in this place of safety and i think you know we we were talking before we hit record you know, i too feel like i've i live in a place of safety now where where i'm cared for um by my wife and you know i've built the home around me mm-hmm. that keeps me with the things that i need what how do you see the future for yourself you know it it, th- it, it that's a great question I, as i say in fact i taught a, a course yesterday for caregivers and there was a card in, in self-care that I call, you can't give from an empty well, how to use self-care to stay full. And caregivers are subject to compassion fatigue, vicarious trauma, secondary trauma, and then ultimately burnout. And I think you and I can share the, the burnout of the excessive wear and tear uh, that depression puts on us. Uh, and I think me, we men in particular are subject to stress. That's certainly my number one trigger. So from, I was taught that the true source of the problem is this, the confluence of genetics and trauma. And that the, the monster is not just satisfied with feasting on our brain, our mind, he wants to devour our body and ultimately as a, as a final course, just eat our soul. So it impacts really, it's the whole of who we are, body, mind, and spirit, which is a sobering reality. But oftentimes the identification and and the realization of the severity of the problem points the way to the solution. So my, I put, as I like to say, my self-care on a pedestal. There's nothing more important. At this point, I, I no longer believe the lie that if I prioritize the care of me, I'm being selfish because it's actually just the opposite. So I will give my credit. I will give myself credit primarily just for one thing. I am ridiculously consistent. So for body, it's sleep hygiene, clean attention to diet, because as you know, more neurotransmission happens in our gut than in our head. And so we are what we eat. I go to the gym after our podcast today. I'll go to the gym for the fourth time this week, make sure I'm outside every day, weekly counseling, monthly psychiatry, uh, different support groups, because I think I recently heard a definition of hope is hearing other people's experiences, the realization that we're not alone. We're not this weird, grotesque anomaly. We have brothers and sisters, young and old, who walk oftentimes alone and we get together there is strength in numbers. And then I take my meds every day. I have two, uh, an antidepressant and a mood stabilizer. But here's where I always tell people, we need to have expectations. Uh, Antidepressant is like an Advil. It's not an antibiotic. 
at best, and mine work beautifully, it quiets my symptoms to create the opening for the true healing aspects of diet and sleep and exercise. And then at the foundation is the my own spiritual ritual with a, the life force of my understanding. And then now, like you said so beautifully, Stuart, the identification of what is my mission? What, what's my purpose? So I feel that I am making a contribution to the world. So long-winded in answer to the question, my job, my mission now is I go out and tell my story, primarily to anyone who will hear from, I've talked to as, as young children, as young as, as five years old. Um, I've talked to 90 year olds, police, educators, businesses, all across the spectrum. My life was saved and I figure my job my purpose, because I've been supported by a great number of people. I, I'm unusual for a lot of reasons in that for many of us who are overwhelmed, people run away because they don't understand. But like those five souls, those five fortunate men that, that came to you, you run towards them. I'm blessed by a great number of people who since that day in the psychiatric hospital have run towards me. And in part, I want to honor what they've done and to remind people, people like that exist. And ultimately, I, I, I want to stress the fact that on the one hand, I don't think we're ever going to catch up with enough therapists and clinicians and social workers, which is sobering news. But the truth is, we all hold actually the answer in our hand. And that's connection. We know what it's like when somebody remembers our name and we had no expectation that they would. Makes us have this, we can go from invisibility to inclusion. We know what it's like when somebody creates a space so we can tell our story. And I'm a big one on a handwritten note that we go to the mailbox and a handwritten note has very, it's a very uniquely sized envelope. And we're looking at unsolicited mail and bills and all of a sudden there's that note. And we know there's gonna be one of three things. It's going to be an invitation, might be money, some cash, or someone is going to tell us that they care, that they love us. And at one point I had two notes that in particular are still impacting me to this day. Yeah, you see, that was an interesting thing about the handwritten note. There are a couple of things happened to me um, many years ago. I had a business that was failing and, and my first wife and I were looking at you know, can we actually pay the mortgage? Can we feed the kids? And the, the postman knocked at the door and the, the envelope that he had wouldn't fit through the, the letterbox. And I was thinking, oh, great, you know, I've got to sign for this thing. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's going to be legal proceedings or whatever. And in it was 500 pounds in cash. <sighs> so what's that? You know, uh, $750 or so. Um, anonymous. Just an envelope with cash in it. Anonymous? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That story goes on. I actually, in the end, worked out who it was, and I've been able to thank that person, although I did it in an anonymous way. But hey, that's a different... I love thing. anonymity to anonymity. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I knew they were in the room, and I told the story, and I thanked the person, I yeah. but I knew that he was in the room. Right. Anyway, um, and the other one was... You know, I run this training business and uh, often, yeah, it is often, every time, in fact, after the course runs, one of the students will send me a card mm. 
just with a handwritten note. In it. And yesterday, my um, my admin team and I were tidying up the office, and it's a nightmare. It's like everybody's in jeans and t-shirts, and we're in the office, and we're moving furniture, and we're cleaning everything out. And uh, Anita, my, my PA, found this card that had been put together at the end of one of the courses, and all the students had written things in it. And it was a little bit bent because it had been at the bottom of a right. pile of stuff. In it. And she said, what are we doing with this? And I thought, I can't bring myself to throw that. Mm. We have to find a way of keeping these because it, it actually, that's part of my recovery right. is when I'm feeling worthless is actually to, to look at that and say, no, these people said these things right. about me because I spent a week of my life training them to do the, the thing. Right. And um, yeah, those handwritten notes, those envelopes of obscure size. Yeah, are... yeah, exactly. I, I worked with uh, one of the large universities on the East Coast, and I was meeting with the director of, of student life, the associate director, and we were talking about handwritten notes. And Kia is probably in her mid-30s, and from the time she was 16 years old, she has collected the handwritten notes and she takes that box and it just gets bigger and bigger. And in fact, so if I may, so tomorrow is the eight year anniversary and up till four years ago, every August 31st, even along this journey of, of to mental wellness, which I believe is our right, not a privilege. It was the worst day of the year. I looked at it and, and just wanted to avoid it. And so four years ago, I went to the mailbox and there was one of those uniquely sized notes or envelopes. And I looked at the return address and I didn't recognize it. And so I opened up the, the envelope and sure enough, it was a card on the outside of the card. It says advice from a glacier, go slow, carve your own path, blah, 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 like whatever. And then I open it up and in very large letters written in crayon, it says happy today, happy today. And it's from my sneaky dear friend, Greg, and he wanted to throw me off. And the short version of the story is as a result of that note, for most of the world, January 1st is New Year's Day. Tomorrow is my New Year's Day. And I will journey back to the bridge and stand in that same spot. But I look up and I take in the magnificent view and give thanks. And as a result of a card showing up on a day, somebody making sure putting a stamp on it, that piece of paper changed my relationship with the worst day of my life to now memorialize it as the beginning of a new year. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have a similar sense. And for me, it was Christmas. Christmas has been hell mm. for years. Mm. Um, and uh, it was kind of the time that my first marriage broke up. It was the time that I kind of lost the plot completely and it's taken yeah that was 10 years ago uh and then after after this most recent and you know it's now where are we six years since this will be the sixth christmas but actually christmas is it's not the family time that you might dream it would be but it's at least a time where i can go you know what i i'm okay yeah. so yeah that journey maybe the mental wellness measure the milestone a person can put in the ground is to say, actually, when I look at my worst day and it's now the day that I look up and look forward yeah. rather than the day that I look down, maybe that's the 
the measure that you've really turned the corner. No, I do it, and and I think it. You know, we don't, and I I know you would support this. We we don't get to this point alone, and I I like to describe acceptance has two parts. One, the the energy, the tangible energy that that those who support us put out. It, it's this tractor beam, but we must take responsibility to move towards it. And so, Greg, my beloved brother, not by biology but by association and connection created that space. I could have looked at the the note as like, wow, but that piece of paper was literally oozing with love and understanding and, and a calling forth. Like this is a possibility to change your relationship with that. Yeah. Well, David, that's been an amazing conversation. And I, I, as I said, before we started, I have a sense we could carry on talking for hours, but everybody's commutes over now they've, they've got to work they're sitting in their car thinking come on Stuart and David shut up because um, <laughs> we want to stop listening to the podcast but let's let's aim to circle back and and do another episode sometime and uh, thank you so much for your honesty for your uh, openness and for your story which I hope will reach out there and encourage somebody to to look up instead of look down mm. and to to walk towards those who are there to help. Uh, we will put uh, David's contact details in the show notes and uh, my own, and we'll also put some uh, contact details of useful organizations. Uh, key one in the United Kingdom is an organization called the Samaritans. They are always on the telephone mm. if you need them 24 hours a day. Um, and uh, thank you, David. Really been a privilege to have you on the show and the feeling is uh, as my grandmother used to like to say Stuart, right back at you thank you so much for the privilege and the honor you're welcome thank you so much for listening to this episode of the great escape podcast you can find other episodes at all the usual places on itunes stitcher and spotify or at the website greatescapepodcast.com forward slash episodes and if you'd like to contact me to talk about any element of this episode or others have covered please go to greatescapepodcast.com forward slash contact and you can find all the ways of getting hold of me there and if you're stuck in a situation and you can't find the way out please go there send me a message and let's see how we can work together to get you unstuck and moving forward with your life again Please do share this podcast with your friends and family, other people you think might appreciate it, and comment on episodes or send me a message. I'd love to keep the conversation going.